And I often say sports saved me. And so I really, you know, if I hadn't had sports growing up to help me deal with my own trauma, I don't know where I would have ended up, you know? And so being in Afghanistan and seeing some of the trauma that women have to go through just to have access to basic rights, I could relate to them. I could feel their pain. People say that having access to sports teaches you all sorts of skills from, you know, being competitive to leadership to all these things. But for me, it's also just an outlet to enable you to navigate the other things that you are doing in life. So I think there's just so many great things that sports brings to the table. This is The Metal Set. Hi, this is Dawn, an ultra cyclist and sports PR specialist. And I'm Afshan, an endurance athlete and journalist. And we're on a quest to bring you stories of tenacity, courage, and metal. From athletes in the Middle East and beyond. Earlier this week, you heard our interview with Zainab Razai, the first Afghan woman to race and finish the Ironman 70.3 World Championships in Utah. It was heartbreaking, but Zainab's persistence offers a ray of hope to anyone with aspirations to turn their life around despite their circumstances. Today, we have Jackie Faye, the founder of the nonprofit She Can Try. Jackie saw the potential in Zainab to break barriers and fight for her rights. Her organization made sure Zainab was Ironman ready by opening doors and helping with access to training and resources to get to the championship. We had to get Jackie on because of her mission of empowering women in disadvantaged and crisis zones came about from her own experience dealing with trauma as a child and her career as a journalist. Jackie worked as a journalist alongside NATO troops in Afghanistan from 2015 to 2021. She met Zainab and three other female athletes from Afghanistan during that stint. They became the first She Can Try team to train for triathlons. In 2017, Jackie was also training to become the first woman to compete six Ironman triathlons on six different continents. She achieved this feat in 2018 and took it as an opportunity to further promote her cause. In our chat, Jackie shares how sports saved her while growing up in an abusive household and how sports holds the same power for women in countries like Afghanistan and other conflict zones. She tells us about how these women pushed through challenges to learn how to swim, bike and train for their first Ironman in Dubai and what happened when Taliban took over in Afghanistan last year. She also tells us what's next for She Can Try. Jackie's vision aligns with our purpose and this chat reinforced how much more work needs to be done for women's rights and equality in all spheres. Let's get into it. Hi, Jackie. Thank you so much for joining us today. We spoke with Zainab earlier, and you feature quite prominently in both her athletic journey and also what we would say is a really harrowing escape from Afghanistan. We're really excited to hear your own story as well as your role in Zainab's story through She Can Try. Yeah. No, thank you so much for having me. I'm super excited to be here. We were reading a little bit about you and the story of how She Can Try came about is just something that we've got tidbits about. So if you can start off by telling us how She Can Try came about, that would be amazing. Yeah. So I decided in 2017 um, to 2018 that I wanted to launch an organization to empower women through sports. Sports have always played such a huge role in my life, and I'm a firm believer 
that every woman should at least know three basic sports, which are swimming, cycling, and running, right? I think that everyone can swim, bike, and run, or at least learn how. And so to to launch the organization, you know, she can try, or I, as in triathlon, I decided, well, you know, I too want to show that I know what it takes to put myself out there and make myself vulnerable. And so I did six Ironmans on six continents within one year to launch She Can Try. And at the time, I was working as a military journalist for NATO in Afghanistan. And so after I launched the organization, I thought, you know, I mean, of course, I want to empower women all over the world. But I thought if I can really start here in Afghanistan and empower an Afghan woman now to do a triathlon, well, then I can really do it anywhere. What year was this? So I started in 2017 and then launched She Can Try in 2018. And then we recruited the first Afghan triathletes in 2019. So just taking a step back, we always go back into all of our guests story. We're definitely going to go into She Can Try and specifically, you know, the accomplishments of your athletes that are under the program and Zainab in particular. But we did a questionnaire before and you mentioned, you know, in the Southern US, your upbringing really inspired that as well. So talk us through how you went from Southern princess to warrior princess. Yeah, I don't mind the term princess, but yeah, like I definitely identify more with warrior princess these days. But, you know, my dad was in the Air Force. So I traveled a lot as a kid in Europe. And then when he retired after, you know, 20 years of being in the Air Force, we moved back to a very small town in South Carolina where, you know, he and my mother met. And about a year after moving back home and being able to buy the big house and have everything that they wanted, you know, I'd worked the previous 20 years for, my mother got cancer and died, you know, um, within 10 weeks from, you know, the day that she was diagnosed to her funeral was about 10 weeks. And so after her death, um, you know, and my dad got remarried, I grew up in, you know, what I would describe as a very abusive home, mostly from my step family. And my outlet was always sports. And I often say sports saved me. And so I really, you know, if I hadn't had sports growing up to help me deal with my own trauma, I don't know where I would have ended up, you know. And so being in Afghanistan and seeing some of the trauma that women have to go through just to have access to basic rights, I could relate to them. I could feel their pain. People say that having access to sports teaches you all sorts of skills from, you know, being competitive to leadership to all these things. But for me, it's also just an outlet to enable you to navigate the other things that you are doing in life. So I think there's just so many great things that sports brings to the table. Were you always a triathlete? Was that the preference in terms of sports for you? No, no, no. So I grew up, you know, running cross country and playing soccer. I was a local television reporter in my 20s. And then my goal before I turned 30 was to finish my first Ironman and graduate from grad school. And so I did that with six days to spare. And then shortly after my 30th birthday, I was living in New York City, and I got an email out of the blue about a job in Afghanistan and packed up my Manhattan apartment and got on a military plane headed in to the conflict zone. And um, I was there off and on from 2015 to 2021, spending a total of about four years on the ground. And did you do the six Ironman triathlons on six continents in a year while you were living in Afghanistan? 
while you were yeah. based there? So, um, well, I started the goal and I was just like, I don't know, traveling. I wasn't really living anywhere. And then mm-hmm. halfway through that goal, so I went to Afghanistan in 2015, stayed for about six months, left briefly. Um, and then I started the goal to launch my nonprofit. And halfway through that, I got another phone call about another gig in Afghanistan. So headed back. So I did three out of the country. And then the last three, I did training while I was in Afghanistan. And how was training like in Afghanistan? Zainab has an experience that she shared with us. How was your experience training in Afghanistan? Being a expat in Afghanistan and being a local are very different, you know. So I, I always try to tell people for the majority of the time that I was in Afghanistan, you know, I lived compound life, you know, so like I lived at um, what was called NATO's Resolute Support Headquarters for some of the years I was there. Um, another year I lived out in the Baron Hotel, which is, it's a hotel, but it's really a compound. And then, yeah, I did stay out in a house briefly when I trained with my athletes on the ground. But, you know, the pool that they were able to swim in was actually bigger than the pool that I trained in because the pool at the time that I had access to was the one on the U.S. Embassy's compound, which is extremely small. And so I would swim in that pool a couple of times a week. And then on a compound, you don't cycle outside. So I would mostly just train on a spin bike. When you're a local, you know, that's what she can try did is we would drive our participants to safe areas to cycle and run. So almost the She Can Try participants in Afghanistan um, had access to to better training than living on a compound. So yeah, I mean, I didn't have to deal with like the harassment or any of that sort of stuff. They're completely different experiences. But we, yeah, when I you know, took the break to fly bicycles into the country for my athletes, actually from Dubai, I, you know, lived out in a house, swam in the local pools, rode a bicycle down the streets of Kabul, just like my athletes did. So I did both. How did you meet Zainab? Was it 2017, 2018? And so was she was tried started already? So we were in the process of launching. You said fast forward to 2018. So I'm going to take you back. So in 2015, sure. when I first got there, I was doing, you know, research about sports in the country because, you know, I've always done like teaching fitness on the side. And so I came across an article in the garden about the first Afghan woman to run the marathon of Afghanistan. And that was in 2015. And I would actually teach classes on the compounds where I was living to, you know, other expats, you know, diplomats and, you know, military members and then other contractors like myself and I would often tell her story in the classes that I was teaching as like motivation and the fact that she trained for a full marathon in Afghanistan by running in circles in her backyard. And so, you know, I was like, you know, you guys don't have an excuse. Like you, you may think, you know, you're in pain or whatever, but a lot of people don't have the privilege to work out. Um, and so in telling her story, like for years, then in 2017, when I was doing my own goal, of the six Ironmans on six continents within one year, I came across the group of Afghan women runners again and realized that they were with another um, NGO called Free to Run. And so I started volunteering for Free to Run by helping them organize runs at NATO's Resolute Sport Headquarters. So we would bring the women onto our compound as one of the safe areas for them to run because, you know, it was enclosed by 
a huge concrete wall around uh, the, the base. So, so yeah, we would bring about 20 women on a couple of times a month. And when you bring on local Afghan women, you have to run with them. They can't just roam around the base however they want. You are their escort. And so if they're running, you're running. <laughs> um, and so um, Zainab was my running partner. And at that time, you know, she was training for an ultra marathon in Mongolia. And I was just super inspired by her journey. And after I finished my goal, you know, I flew my last um, Ironman of the six on six was in Boulder, Colorado. And they flew me to New York after my final race. And I was on, you know, the Today Show on national television. And I spoke about, you know, Zainab and the other Afghan women that I was running with at the time. And then I, you know, I went for a walk in Central Park after I was on national TV and I messaged Zainab and I was like, oh, I spoke to you, you know, about you today on national TV. And I don't think she under, you know, she didn't even understand what, what the big deal the Today Show was, you know? Um, and I'm like, no, no, literally like millions of people watch that show. And so um, <laughs> she was really the first person that I messaged after, after, yeah, that race. But I mean, Did a lot you of commit her to a try on live TV. In yeah. The United States. <laughs> no, 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 no. I didn't commit her to the triathlon at that time. <laughs> um, no, we ended up seeking um, applications through Free to Run's alumni. And mm-hmm. so that's how we ended up getting our athletes. And, you know, Zainab applied and then um, we picked her along with three other women. Talk us through their try journey. Obviously, you brought these women to watch their first try to Dubai, the Dubai 70.3 in 2019. And you've published one of your journal entries online talking about crying when you saw them swim for the first time. It was an emotional time for you. So, I wouldn't say emotional. I would say scary. Okay. <laughs> I was, Zainab, um, Zainab I was scared those. out of my mind that these women would not ever learn how to swim and that <laughs> I had signed up for a very unrealistic journey ahead. And it's, I mean, it's one thing to empower yourself. But yeah, I mean, the first time I got these four women in the pool, they were literally holding hands and counting to three before they went under the water. I mean, it totally just lost it and started crying. Then they were so sweet. Like they, um, they were like, no, we'll practice so hard. Like you say, <laughs> like I felt so bad because they felt so bad. Like I was like disappointed in them even before we started. I mean, I'm a human, right? And I mean, what we signed up to do was really hard. And so, yeah, I mean, I think I cried more in the journey with She Can Try than I've cried over anything in my life. I mean, it's been a mm-hmm. tough road. So how would you assess the motivation and the effort that they put in? Because obviously, Zainab blossomed. She went on to do her first 70.3 in Dubai, and then she went for the championships. So how would you assess that? You know, it's really hard for, um, there's not competition, right? So if you're the only person competing, it's really hard to push yourself. And then also because you're not integrated, you know, so like I grew up, you know, I was, when I'm telling my story, I often go through the history of women who've advocated for sports in the U.S. And, you know, in 1972, in the United States of America, we passed Title IX, which allowed, you know, basically girls to play on the boys teams in schools because so few women at that time played sports that often there wasn't a girls team, right? And so even me, when I was in middle school, 
at 12 years old was the only girl on the boys soccer team. And that was in the nineties. You know, we still didn't have enough girls in my middle school to form a team, but at least I had been boys to push me. But here you are, if you're in a society where, you know, girls and boys don't really work out together, or at least not, I mean, they, they can in certain areas if it's safe, but it's, it, you have to pick and choose like the areas to do that. And so, you know, you really don't have anybody to push you, right? And so I think, you know, competition is what makes good athletes. You know, it's really hard to train when you're the only one doing it. That's true. And there's no coaches other than when we took these women out of the country to teach them how to swim. And then I would, you know, pay for them to, or my organization would pay for them to go swimming twice a week and their transportation and all of their clothes. But it's not like I could hire another local Afghan to teach them how to swim. There was nobody. Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's yeah, literally same. nobody. And even if there was a boy that knows how to swim, well, he's not allowed in the girls pool. And then um, we were on such a slim budget. I couldn't afford to hire another expat to help. I mean, we did the best we could, but again, Mm -hmm. it was a very, very tough goal. Zainab mentioned she was looking up YouTube videos of swimming and she she recounted seeing you the first time seeing them trying to float (laughs) as well in her podcast. But it's just as someone who's not a great swimmer, even I think a year to become, you know, it's a very daunting thing to think about learning to swim for a half Ironman, you know, in a year. Um, So it's quite amazing. So she said that you guys had done different training camps. I think one was in, here in Dubai and then one was in Abu Dhabi. When did you kind of see the progression, you know, see like, oh, it's happening. They're going it. to be okay. You know, yeah. um, well, like you said, it's it's daunting to to train for a swim. And I, you know, granted, started my own triathlon journey already knowing how to float, but I by, did not know how to swim 2.4 miles in open water, which is a full Ironman And I trained, did a a six month training plan. And I know that like the first three months of just learning how to swim, you know, it was every day, like, am I even doing this right? But repetition, if you do it, and I kept telling them that, and I'm like, do just keep doing it over and over and over and over. And eventually it just clicks one day and you're like, oh, I know how to swim. (laughs) that's really is how it works. You just like keep doing it. And eventually, so actually a year to me was plenty of time to get these skills down. Really, I was, you know, mostly concerned with raising the money to afford it all and just having, you know, to show up. I mean, you have to be dedicated to come to practice every day. And the pools in Afghanistan, they discourage women from swimming on their period, you know? So that was like a whole nother conversation. Like I had to, you know, talk to them how, you know, the pool actually acts as like a natural vacuum. Like you, you won't just start bleeding in the water if you're like swimming, you know? And so all of these things that growing up in America in a society where we swim on our period, (laughs) it's not a big deal, but you know, like there's so few women that swim there. They really make women jump through hoops to, to participate in these sort of things, including, you know, the cost barrier. Mm -hmm. And there were four, four women on the team, correct? Yes. Yeah. We started with four. And then by the time we went to Spain, about halfway through 2019, we were down to three. And then I realized we needed to really put all of our resources into the top two athletes who I thought were going to make it to compete. And so then the rest of the year, I focused on Zara and Zainab. 
And then after um, Zainab finished the half Ironman in Dubai, you know, we chose to take her on to the half Ironman World Championship. Amazing. What was the process like to sign up for the championship? If you can take us through that, like how did she sign up for it or did it go through She Can Try? No. So um, the Ironman Foundation awarded us the slot through my organization. So yeah. So most women have to qualify for the race and it's very difficult. And so no, because we were helping these women who, you know, were training and in very unique circumstances, the Ironman Foundation, you know, had made an agreement with She Can Try that they would give us slots to the Half Ironman World Championship. But I wanted the athletes to to work for it. I didn't want Mm -hmm. them to think that they would just get a slot to the Half Ironman World Championship. So that was the deal that I made with them is that they had to finish another half Ironman in order to get that slot. It it was a difficult journey though. I mean, even the half Ironman in Dubai, like, you know, I was with Zainab, you know, through that race, like I did that race with her, but I often wonder if I had stayed, you know, behind a little bit, if I could have also gotten, you know, Zara across the finish line, but I chose to stay with who was ever in the lead and Mm -hmm. Zainab was a better swimmer. But actually, Zara was a, was a better cycler and runner. Um, but uh, there's only so many of me. And mm-hmm. yeah, I, I mean, again, we did the best we could hanging on a shoestring from 2019 until the end of last month. I think getting to the start line, you know, of getting any of the these, line, yeah. yeah, of any of these events particularly training in the circumstances that they've trained in is amazing. I mean, mean, now they're, you know, um, Zara and Zainab both went on to be Fulbright scholars in the States. And, you know, now they're in the U.S. and have access to training, you know, just like any other American would. But that's not how either of them started their journey. So, so at, but at the time, you have to remember, just getting a visa is difficult. I mean, the fact that we were able to take, I mean, the visas to Dubai, that was not so difficult. But visas to Spain for Afghan women, I mean, those literally came through six days before we were supposed to fly. I mean, I was like the whole time, I mean, I'm sure I've aged like, I don't know, 20 years through this process. I mean, literally it just, I was always so stressed out because I just, I felt like these women were counting on me and I'm like, Hey, we're going to do this. I'm the coach. I shouldn't be, you know, I'm supposed to be the one that's opening the doors, but the doors were not so easy to open. I'm Canadian. I totally take that for granted all the time and access to other countries. And a lot of people don't think about that or, oh. you know, how difficult it would be or getting denied yeah. visas, you know, just even if no, you have to go that through the process all the time. Not, not with my organization, but um, a lot of organizations would try, you know, to send their participants to all sorts of countries in Europe or in the US or in Canada or Australia, and the visas would get denied. And then, and also understandably, because a lot of, you know, people from Afghanistan would get visas and then want to go back. And so, Mm -hmm. and then you also don't blame them. And so it's a very complicated issue, right? It's it's a very, it's so complicated. It's, there's, I wouldn't blame an Afghan woman for not going back on a, on a visa or Afghan man for that matter. I think if anything that this journey has helped me realized is my own privilege. I don't judge, you know, other people. And I think we're all trying to make the best choices that we can in life. But, you know, I'm not from a country that I would want to leave 
And I don't know what that feels like. And I'm so lucky that I don't. That was the mainstay of the conversation that we had with Zainab this morning. I think the two more, the most prevalent words that come to mind are gratitude and acknowledging our privilege. Yeah, exactly. I guess on that point as well, you know, Zainab recounted earlier today, the most heartbreaking story of her leaving Afghanistan. And again, you know, like much like the journey she was talking about into try, your name came up quite a bit and that you were in contact and you were helping her through that. I mean, we would love to hear from your perspective, if you're comfortable to talk about that, those couple of days and, you know, how that was for you as well, because I know it was a very scary, scary situation. So I left Afghanistan in May of 2021. I could have stayed, um, but my best friend from grad school was getting married. And so I knew when I went to her wedding that there was a chance that I wouldn't be able to go back. And I made that choice. I mean, I had gone through COVID and I had been in the country from February of 2020 when we went to compete in Dubai. I didn't leave Afghanistan until May of 2021. So that was a long stretch in Afghanistan over a Mm -hmm. year. And that was the longest I had ever gone, you know, straight in Afghanistan without a break. And I really needed to go to the U.S. (laughs) Um, and see, you know, my friends and my family and my people. And so, yeah, I went to that wedding and then it was clear things were, were going south. And then they made my job remote. And so I was, you know, still supporting the mission in Afghanistan, but from my place in Austin, Texas. I flew to um, New Hampshire, actually, when Zara landed in the U.S. on August 11th. And then even that day, you know, we went to dinner that night and, you know, she was crying and then I was crying because, you know, we just both didn't know. Uh, Well, I just remember Zara saying, you know, I don't know if I'm going to be able to see my family again. And so, you know, what do you tell somebody? Like, I don't know if she's going to either. Like, I really don't. And then on August 15th, I was back in my place in Austin, Texas. Uh, I woke up that morning and I have, you know, news alerts on my phone that Ashraf Ghani has fled Afghanistan and the Taliban have taken Kabul. And I'm like, oh my God, what happened while I was sleeping? I'm literally on my way to the gym that Sunday morning. And I'm just like a crazy person. Like I'm telling the person at the desk at the gym, I'm like, like there's a Taliban flag flying on the presidential palace. Like I'm just in such like shock. And I felt like I was surrounded by like all these people that were like, did not care. <laughs> yeah. you know, like, um, And so I get through the gym class, I call Zainab and her flight, you know, that was already planned to the U.S. was on August 16th. And then, you know, I'm seeing all the news coming out. All commercial flights are canceled. Taliban has set up checkpoints all over the city. And I'm like, oh, my God, like, what are we going to do? And so, but like I said, you know, like I worked at NATO headquarters in Afghanistan. I knew a lot of people. So I'm calling my friends, you know, that worked in the four-star general's office, asking them for advice. And one of my friends says, you know, I think that she should go to the airport. And if you know somebody on the ground that you can call to help her in the morning, I think that's probably your best bet to get out tomorrow. And so that's what I told her. I said, I think you should go on to the airport. I'm going to try to get in touch with people in the morning. But by this time, it was it was nighttime. Like by the time we figured everything out, like it was 
because they're ahead in time, right? And so mm-hmm. I, you know, stay up till 10 o'clock that night and then she's messaging me, you know, that she's going to the airport. So it's like 5 a.m. her time. It's nighttime in, in Austin, Texas. I was working odd hours anyway. So I was like staying up late at night working anyway. And so she's, you know, telling me she's on her way to the airport. She gets to the airport and then she calls me, you know, screaming. I can hear gunfire in the background. I think she's going to die. And then I'm, you know, calling, you know, a guy that I know on the ground, a special forces officer. He's sleeping, you know, like he's also, they're also working long, long hours. He was working, you know, the gate the night before. Everyone on the ground at that time was going on like four hours of sleep. So I'm like, wake up, wake up, wake up, wake up, like wake up. So um, finally he wakes up. And he's like, okay, I'll drive, you know, to the runway to see if I can get her. I sent him a full length body picture, her passport, her visa. You know, I, I've traveled all over the place with this, this with her at that point. So I have her, all of her information, mm-hmm. tell her to, you know, send me a picture of herself. He is able to get to her on the runway and then drives her past security to get her to a diplomatic flight. And then, you know, even then though, like, that wasn't, it wasn't like once she got to the diplomatic flight that that was the end. She still had to sweet talk her way to get onto that diplomatic flight. But I think having, you know, already having a U.S. visa certainly helped. Mm-hmm. There was, she, she told me, you know, there's one Turkish diplomat who helped her get onto that flight. It was harrowing. Listening to her recount, it was... Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm messaging her the whole time. I'm like, do not leave that plane. Like you tell them like that you are getting on that flight. Uh, There's no options, but even, you know, and then, I mean, once she was on the plane, it was still like I was having a heart attack because it was, they had trouble taking off because there were so many people on the airfield. And so Mm -hmm. finally they lit like a fire to clear the people. But yeah, I mean, every step of the way it was, a, a difficult, you know, thing from, from even getting to the airport. I mean, we had trouble even finding someone to take her to the airport. And it was actually Zara's uncle um, that ultimately agreed um, to give her a ride to the airport. But, you know, a lot of people didn't want to drive past the Taliban checkpoints. I mean, I we mm-hmm. were calling taxi companies. I was like, offer them $500, like offer them $1,000. Like, I don't care. <laughs> like, um, And no one would, you know, give her a taxi ride. So finally we were able to find, you know, someone to give her a ride. I mean, Zara's uncle, he had been living in Afghanistan through the Taliban the first time. So he's like, I'm not scared of these guys, you know? So, um, so yeah, um, uh, he's like, this is, this is no, you know, I already know these people. (laughs) (laughs) So Zainab doesn't back down. She gets to the U.S. And she she told us that when she did land in the U.S., she was so relieved to see a friendly face in you. She was still processing everything. So I think she she took a while to find her bearings when she got there. But when she did and when she started realizing that she has to move on with her life, get into university life and also training for the championship, tell us a little bit about how she can try then supported her and taking her to the championships and what that feeling was like when she crossed the finish line as well. Yeah, I mean, we covered the cost of anything that she needed to train, which was actually so much cheaper um, in America than it was in Afghanistan, right? You know, like, Mm -hmm. it's a gym membership, and that's it. And then we had a volunteer that actually had reached out to us that donated a bicycle to her. And now, I mean, once we were in the US, it was obviously a ton easier to train, 
you know, we still covered her costs, yeah, like her gym membership. And then obviously to get to the championships, you know, the flight, the hotel, servicing the bicycle and all of that stuff. So, I mean, once we were in the U.S., it was it was fairly easy. Um, you know, at that point, we were really um, trying to think of, you know, what is next for She Can Try and what is next for what we want to do in Afghanistan. And, you know, because you know, since Zainab landed, you know, we had that happy moment of hugging at the airport, but then, you know, our hearts immediately shifted to, well, gosh, there's still a lot of people in Afghanistan that we care about. You know, I was a teacher for one of the years that I was in Afghanistan. A lot of my students, you know, I'm still working to try to help them out. That's dozens of other Afghans. I think, you know, people see she can try and I'm like, you know, all of our athletes got out, but you know, our driver, Allie, you know, he's still in Pakistan trying to get out. So, I mean, there's still a lot of people I care about that we've been trying to to get out of the country. But yeah, the next thing, you know, we wanted to support is just helping women simply, you know, get some sort of education. And so we're we're working with another organization to support an underground girls school in Afghanistan as the Taliban have basically stopped allowing girls over the age of 12 to go to school. And these are girls that I know, you know, I mean, before I left Afghanistan, like I said, in May of 2021, I traveled um, with Zainab to a, you know, a high school in Herat. And these girls were so hopeful. And they all looked at me like I was going to help them. And then when the Taliban took over the country. I mean, these, all these little girls were messaging me on social media for help. And they literally sent me pictures of their she can try t-shirts and their notebooks that had my autograph in it. And here I am like, I can't help like 30 young girls, like, you know, along with my students, along with my driver along. I mean, the amount of people that need help and the amount of help that we can give it doesn't match. What can people do? It feels quite like you said, you know, you feeling, I guess, I don't know, helpless. Like what can people do? I don't like Um, the word helpless because there's always things that you can mm -hmm. do. You know, I mean, these people in Afghanistan, you know, they might not ever give out, get out. So you have to learn how to live in that situation. And yeah, I mean, I think having online classes is, is a is a great way to make it more bearable. I mean, a lot of people in Afghanistan right now are struggling to make money. If mm-hmm. if you could, you know, sponsor a young girl to take online classes to then how she's able to seek work opportunities outside of the country so she can support her family. There are things that you can do. I mean, I think in some, I mean, I haven't been back to Afghanistan since the Taliban have taken over. I think in some areas it's, you know, the same as it's always been, you know, in Kabul, I've heard that, you know, women are still walking around, you know, and then I think in, out in like very, very remote areas, you know, it's still, people are just farming and going on with their lives. But yeah, I mean, I think also Afghanistan is on the map because, you know, NATO had a presence there and the U.S. had a presence there. But there is no shortage of countries that have similar issues. You know, if you think about it, 50% of the world lives in poverty. It's not Mm -hmm. a a small amount. It's half of the world. Half of the world. People do not realize that, you know. But I will say one thing I learned from being in Afghanistan is, is how important community is. You know, if you look at like 
in some of the, the poorest areas in the world, you know, you still have really happy people. And it's because they really depend on each other and their family. And I think that, you know, in the U.S., we often become very individualistic. Yeah. Sebastian Younger, um, a war reporter, actually wrote about this um, in his book called Tribe. But he, you know, talks about that, you know, he's seen in like these war-torn countries that people often seemed happier than they were even in, you know, very developed countries. So, I mean, everything's not, you know, doom and gloom and sadness. Um, There's really bright, happy moments, um, you know, amid the trauma. Maybe it's a matter of looking where you can help, not necessarily like one place, but where you can actually contribute and help someone at an individual level even. What's the most rewarding moment for you in the She Can Try journey? Because it seems like, you know, from since starting this organization, you have had some major, major moments. You know, I think just the realizing, you know, really it's helped me realize what's important and that is, you know, community and relationships and then, you know, realizing the privilege that I've had in my own life. Um, I think certainly I hope that I taught the athletes, you know, that were part of my organization something. And I hope that, you know, even the volunteers, you know, we had women all over the world that, um, you know, knew about our story and that we were a community. But I, I, I don't know. I think I learned a lot about myself. And I think that's what I'm most thankful for. What's next for She Can Try? We're going to support this underground girls school. But, you know, really without constant revenue sources, um, you know, it's very difficult. And right now, I mean, the world's hurting. I mean, you have inflation. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm in the Netherlands, which is, you know, one of the richest countries in Europe, but you know, gas prices here are going up the war in Ukraine. I mean, there's like, it's a crazy, crazy time. I think a lot of people, you know, just in the developed world are worried how they're going to pay their bills. And so that's certainly cut back on people's ability to donate. You know, some of our our biggest funders have really come back to me and said, you know, that things are really tight for them right now. And then also because of COVID, we lost a lot of our fundraising athletes around the world because the sports world um, had been shut down for so long. So, you know, right now we're, we're still really rebuilding. Um, I wanted to get Zainab across the finish line of the Half Ironman World Championship. But next, I really, you know, want to concentrate on, you know, recruiting fundraising athletes. Um, We have this amazing suit that we designed um, with Zoot Sports that we will be selling soon and then hoping to build that community back up as part of fundraising, supporting this underground girls school in Afghanistan. And then also I want to move on to projects elsewhere. You know, we did a pilot program in Nairobi, Kenya in February, where we trained 20 young girls how to swim from the slums of Kibera, which is the largest urban slum in all of Africa. And so I would really like to, you know, see a Kenyan woman from Kibera, you know, ultimately go on to compete in half Ironman. You know, there's one on the African continent now in Rwanda. So yeah, I, I think often, you know, I've raced all over the world doing the six Ironmans on, on six continents. And no matter where your races are, you see, I mean, even when I was in South Africa for the one I did there, you know, I didn't see a lot of people from actually Africa uh, competing in it. And so, you know, I mean, there's no shortage of work to be done to diversify the playing field. And so, yeah, we're always going to be there. I try to keep things quality versus quantity. So if we're helping, you know, one woman 
the numbers are not what's important to me. It's the quality of the programming. And I would, you know, especially for Zara and Zainab, I do believe that she can try change their lives forever. And, and it changed my life forever. And I think that a lot of our volunteers, I think that it's changed their lives forever. And so, you know, I'm about small, but really, really impactful. Amazing. Where can people find you online? Yeah. So our website is um, shecantry.org. Um, and we're also on social media, just at shecantry. Amazing. And what are the different ways in which people can support you at this point? Yeah. I mean, if, if they would like to be a fundraising athlete, you know, and talk about what we've done, we're going to be um, starting recruiting for that team fairly soon. You know, for a small organization, we've accomplished a lot, but a lot of people, sadly, you know, still haven't heard our story. And so I want to recruit other people to, to help me tell the story. Right. And so what, and what better way to do that than in the community that would already get it, which is the triathlon community while they're doing their own races. Well, I think, you know, yeah, just in this short amount of time, you've impacted a lot of people and we hope to yeah, share that story. And they've impacted me. More. It's a, yeah. a two way street. It's a two way street. Thank you so much for listening today. We hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you did, we ask that you please share it with family, teammates, friends, and even frenemies, or share via social media. Please also leave us a review wherever you're listening to this podcast. Five stars only. And visit us on themetalset.com for more stories and resources. Thanks again for listening. Your support means the world to us. This is The Metal Set.